Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to Luke chapter 1. I almost said John. Thank you, Adam, for the choir, orchestra, Annette, and most particular, our wonderful choir, the superstars, for leading us in worship. We have a, a very important ministry to our superstars, but they minister to us more than we minister to them. Uh, they are a blessing to us all. You cannot spend time with any of those in the, mem- in the members of that group and not be edified and come away encouraged uh, with your just grateful to the Lord and joyful. So I praise God for them. Praise God for all those who are ministering uh, to them. And I praise God for their parents. Well, if you would, if you'd look with me, we're going to be looking at verses 67 to 79. Uh, but for context, or just for, to get at the heart of what Zechariah is saying here, if you look at me in 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Let's pray. Father, simple words, but the truth behind these words changed the world. We thank you that you have raised up a horn of salvation in the house of of the servant David, in keeping with your promise to David, in keeping with your promise to Abraham, in keeping with your promise to Adam and Eve, that a seed would come who would crush the serpent's head and bring deliverance for your people. Father, we pray that as we make our way through this song, the Benedictus, we pray that it would strengthen our faith in your promises. And our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of this promise. And we pray, Lord, for those who have not yet trusted in Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2009, Christmas season of 2009, I had been teaching at the Southern Seminary Extension in Knoxville. So I'd been gone a few days, and, and I came back. And Seth met me at the door. He was three and a half years old at the time. And the first thing Seth said to me was, Dad, you're never going to have to spank me again because I've committed never to do anything wrong again. (laughs) Well, Nate, the resident theologian, was standing there (laughs) listening to this. Nate was five. And he said, Seth... You're going to do something wrong again because you're a sinner. And Jesus hasn't taken away your sins. But then he added, Seth, do you know why Jesus hasn't taken away your sins? Seth said, why? He said, because it's a long way to Louisville. (laughs) Well, I appreciate five-year-old Nate's emphasis on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But one thing he failed to see is that because of God's faithfulness 
to his promises, his promises that he made to, to David, his promises that he made to Abraham, and his promise that he made all the way back to Genesis 3.15, which assures us, among other things, that all the nations of the earth will be salvifically blessed through their offspring. It's not a long way to the Gentile land of Louisville, nor is the long way to Auburn, for that matter. Christmas represents the coming of the seed of Abraham and David to bless the nations. That's why I think it's wonderful that this is the time we gather uh, funds for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Christmas represents he has come to save the nations. And one of the ways we take part in that is giving sacrificially to those who are taking that gospel of hope to the nations. And even before the first Christmas, there was the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner, uh, the one prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. As Malachi 4 verse 2 prophesies some 400 plus years Before the coming of John the Baptist, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And before this son of righteousness comes, Malachi 4, 5, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So these realities are what Zechariah in our text celebrates and shares with us today. Now at this point, uh, Zechariah, and you know the story, he's a priest. Um, He and his wife, Elizabeth, were advanced in years and, and she was barren. But while he is serving as priest in the temple, an angel appears to Zechariah and tells him that Elizabeth would bear a son and that son shall be named John, which means... Uh, the Lord has given grace. The Lord has given grace. And this son, John, would be the forerunner in keeping with the prophecy of Isaiah 40 to Messiah. Well, Zechariah questioned this, and he was struck mute. But after this, Elizabeth conceived, and she gave birth, and everyone assumes that the baby will be named after Zechariah, And Zechariah, still mute at this point, writes down on a tablet that his name will be John. Uh, This was essentially a public declaration of faith for Zechariah. Uh, Verse 64, before we get into our passage, it says, Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. That's one of the evidences of one's salvation. Now, I believe he was an Old Testament saint, but now you're seeing a transition towards the new covenant. And so you see him um, now believing uh, this promise that was actually going to terminate in the coming of Messiah. He blessed God. Blessing God is the fruit of, of our salvation. And so this change in Zechariah's life was a microcosm for what had been going on in Israel for, 14, for 400 years. So 
because Israel had turned their back on God, because they did not believe in the promises and trust in the promises of God, God had been mute, or in a sense, he had not spoken, he had not revealed himself to Israel for 400 years, but now again, revelation is coming forth. And we see this in this man, Zechariah, and his joy overflows in an inspired song. Now, traditionally, we saw last week that the Mary song has traditionally been called the Magnificent. Uh, traditionally, this song has been called Zechariah's Benedictus. Where do we get that? Well, uh, it's from the opening line, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That was rendered in the Latin Vulgate, Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel. That's where we get the name. But what's evident is that his entire life, Zechariah's entire life had been drawn, it had drawn nourishment from the scriptures. And now we're going to see that this song is almost entirely Old Testament text, one text after another. In fact, scholars have estimated that 33, there are 33 allusions to the Old Testament in this short song. Zechariah, just like Mary, bleeds Bible. Should be a challenge to us all. Uh, the Bible, uh, not that we could ever master the Bible, but it should be our central source of, of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. It should be something that we delight in every day of our lives. Well, notice the first thing we see in this passage, praise for God for visiting his people. Well, look with me in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, just for those who are curious about these kinds of things, it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, we, you have wonderful English Bibles, but verses 68 to 75 is one sentence in the Greek. In fact, verses 70, uh, 76 to 79 is one sentence. And so there's only two sentences in, in this song. This is a very long sentence. He, he's so caught up in praise that he forgets to put a period. Um, but it begins with praise because the Lord has visited his people. By sending an angel, by giving his barren wife a child who would be the forerunner, and by putting a, a baby in the virgin womb of Mary, God had clearly uh, made clear to Zechariah that he was visiting his people. And, and I think this should uh, humble us because it reflects just how badly broken we are. Uh, the fact that there was only one solution to our predicament. Our sin, our transgression, our depravity, our guilt, our rebellion, there was only one solution to our, our issue, a divine visitation. Salvation is a divine visitation. It's not something we achieve by climbing a ladder to God. 
It's something that God has achieved for us by coming to us. That's Christmas. And there are nine, get this, nine Old Testament promises in verses 68 to 79 that are all fulfilled by this divine visitation. Uh, The first one we see here in verse 68. He has visited and redeemed his people. We don't have time to go there because it would make the sermon a whole lot longer, but that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 54, 7 to 17. Uh, This is the first of nine promises that is fulfilled by this divine visitation. Well, that brings us to the second promise that is fulfilled, and we see this in verse 69. As Zechariah praises God for fulfilling his ancient promises. Look with me in verse 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant to us. So there's a lot of promises here that are, that are fulfilled in this divine visitation. First, uh, visitation. First of all, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us. This is a fulfillment of 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, uh, Hannah's song. Uh, In verse 71, he has saved us from our enemies. This is Isaiah 14, uh, 1 to 3. And then the fourth promise fulfilled is verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. That is a fulfillment of Ezekiel 16, verse 8. And then the fifth promise in in 74, we'll get to in a moment. But this is a a, a passage that is promise-driven. Zechariah is reflecting on the promises of God. And, and, and all of these promises are being fulfilled in this, uh, this divine visitation. Now, centuries earlier, the psalmist had said, had prophesied in Psalm 132, verse 17, I will make a horn to sprout for David. So a horn... Uh, is a metaphor, a horn was found on many of the animals in the ancient Near East, and that horn was for protection, but that horn also uh, gave the animal a regal appearance. So it had a kingly appearance with this horn, but it also served as protection, and oftentimes that horn would go on the offensive. And, and that became a metaphor for the coming Messiah, the coming king. And, and it's clear from Zechariah here, uh, that the Old Testament believers fed much on God's promises to send Messiah. And that, that becomes the way we read our Old Testaments. We read our Old Testaments um, in, the, in the sense that it is preparing us for Messiah. We already know who the Messiah is, but now we're reading the Old Testament in light of the end. And so as I said earlier, Hannah had prophesied this king would come in her song. And Zechariah is saying, that king is here. Now here's the, the question I would raise to us, largely a Gentile audience. Why would this have been important to a Gentile writer? Luke was a Gentile. In fact, he is writing to Theophilus, who was also a Gentile. 
So why would this promise to send the Davidic king, why would it be important to a Gentile like Luke, a Gentile like Theophilus, and Gentiles like most of us? Well, again, Zechariah is meditating on the promise that was made to David in the Davidic covenant. And in 2 Samuel 7, God had told David that his son would have an everlasting kingdom. It wouldn't be just any son, though. It would be the the son who was faithful to the covenant. He would be faithful to the Mosaic covenant. He would obey God's law perfectly. And and that tells us that David uh, and his line would be the hope of the world. But we also see how David responds in that chapter, 2 Samuel 7. And in 2 Samuel 7, verse 19, this isn't emphasized enough. Here's what David says. This is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. You get the point. This is instruction for mankind. And so the promise made to David didn't just benefit the Jews. This was for the entire world. Jews and Gentiles alike. Of course, we know that. Because when we go back to Genesis 12, in the Abrahamic covenant, God had told Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 2 that it would be through his line, his offspring, his seed, that God would bless the nations, all the families of the earth. And then in Genesis 17, God changes Abram's name, which means exalted father, to Abraham which means a father of a multitude of nations. And so the Davidic covenant was the partial fulfillment and the means of fulfillment to the promise made to Abraham, which blesses the nations. And Zechariah recognized that in his son, John the Baptist, the forerunner, and the fact that Mary was bearing the son of God in her womb, That day is here. And the effect of that, we see in verses 74 and 75. Praise for God delivering us to serve him. Look with me in uh, verse 74. And he says, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, that's the fifth promise of this passage, that's fulfilled in Zephaniah 3 verses 15 to 17, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So that's the effect of this salvation, this deliverance, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Uh, Mankind was born with an original holiness and righteousness and the knowledge of God for that matter in, in the garden, but we lost it because of our sin. And God is restoring the image in every believer, which means our knowledge of God, our holiness, and our righteousness would be restored. And so we see here that that day has come, the day of deliverance. Now, it's interesting um, here that it's important to understand that Israel had a double enemy in that day. 
they were under the tyranny of Rome. But the reason they were under the tyranny of Rome was because they were under the tyranny of sin. God had promised he would bless those who blessed them and he would curse those who cursed them. But if they turned their back on God, God would oppress them and bring them under the subjugation of alien invaders. And, and so what God is promising here through Zechariah is that salvation is going to come in the sense that they would be saved from their greater enemy. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But I want you to notice here, they were saved to serve. That's an important um, aspect of this, that we might serve him without fear. That word serve is used in the Old Testament to refer to the priestly service in the temple. Now, if you'll remember, God had redeemed Israel to be a holy nation, a holy priesthood. Peter picks up that promise in 1 Peter 2 where he speaks of the church as a holy priesthood, uh, a holy nation. And so the, the promise made to Israel is fulfilled in the church through the Lord Jesus Christ who is our great high priest. And, and so what this is telling us is that when God saves us, He's not just saving us to get us to heaven. His goal for us is to infiltrate a sin-guilty world as priest of the new covenant. All of us are restored priesthood in Jesus Christ, our great high priest. So here's the question as we approach 2023. It's a really important question. It's the most important question perhaps you could ask yourself as a believer as you approach this year. What role as a priest has God calling me to, or what is he entrusting me to? And we know that if God has called you out of darkness into light, he is restoring the priesthood in you, in Jesus Christ. And, and that priesthood is to be lived out and carried out in the local church, the local assembly, the local temple, if you will. So that's a question you need to ask yourself as we approach 2023. Notice again, he said he might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. If you're not serving the Lord in his temple as a priest, let me just say this, you're out of the will of God unless you are providentially hindered from being a part of the assembly. Maybe you're a shut-in and, and we recognize that as a, a very unique uh, circumstance, but it's a question we have to ask ourselves. Well, that brings us to the, the next praise, praise for God for forgiving our sins. Look with me in verse 76. Um, and you, child, so he's transitioning here from the fulfillment found in Jesus to his own son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then we come to the sixth promise fulfilled, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. That's a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 34, in the forgiveness of their sins. And so Zechariah here has been singing before the Lord uh, because he has fulfilled his promise made to David in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
And now, in verses 76 to 79, he turns to the role of his son, John the Baptist. And again, by and large, the Jews of that day perceived that their biggest problem was Rome. Today, if you go to Israel and you speak to the typical Jewish person, they will tell you that their biggest problem are their enemies that surround uh, their nation. Um, Many Jews, therefore, longed for a military deliverer who would defeat, who would avenge, and would vindicate them, defeat their enemies, avenge them, and, and vindicate them from their enemies. They perceived Rome was their problem. And Rome was their problem. But Rome was not their central problem. Rome was like a cough to COVID. All of us know that a cough can be a problem. It can keep you up at night. It can hurt your throat. It can make it hard to speak. But if you have COVID pneumonia, the cough is just the symptom, the symptomatic problem to a deeper problem. Rome was their cough. Rome was a symptomatic problem. Um, And because they had misdiagnosed their central problem, they looked for the wrong remedy. They thought they needed a military deliverer. They had lost sight of the fact that they were sinners and that was why Rome had, uh, had, had them in their grips. Reminds me of a wonderful quote from D.A. Carson that I think is nice to, to share with you this time of year. D.A. Carson says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, and our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. That was what Zechariah was emphasizing here. But before Jesus came, it was necessary that John the Baptist, the forerunner, summon the people to a realization of their guilt. That's the hardest issue when you're evangelizing. Sometimes you'll come across someone who has made such a shipwreck of their lives that their biggest issue, the biggest hurdle for them is how how could God ever forgive me? But the average American, when you meet them and you evangelize them, they don't really see that their sin is that deep a problem. Uh, They compare themselves to these these freakish people that they might see on TikTok or uh, on the news. And, oh, I'm not like them. I'm not as bad as them. Before you can understand the good news and embrace the good news, you have to recognize the bad news about your own sin and guilt. That's why John the Baptist came, to prepare the people for the Messiah. And like Israel, uh, we are often wrong about what we need. Uh, We want God to save us from 
a, a, a bad work situation or a financial crisis or maybe a, a difficult relationship, if, if he would only change my circumstances, it just may be that your circumstances are the way they are because of your sin. Or, if not because of your sin, it may be that God has you in those circumstances by his divine providence to expose some area of your life where you're not trusting in him. That's an expression of what, as we'll see in just a moment, verse 78 calls the tender mercy of God. That brings us to the next praise. Praise for God's shining light on our darkness. Look with me in verse 78. Well, again, just for context, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Again, that is a, a fulfillment of the, a promise, the seventh fulfillment that we see in our passage. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 34, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Because of his tender mercy, this divine sunrise that Zechariah is speaking of here will appear in a visitation. It's the same word that we see, shall visit us, that we see in verse 68 uh, where it says he has visited and redeemed his people. It's the same word. But it's glorious how he uses the word sunrise because here he is using it as a metaphor for the Messiah. He is calling the Messiah a sunrise. Now think about a sunrise. The sunrise comes, we all know this, uh, right after it is pitch dark, at its darkest. And he comes to break the darkness as the day spring, as the, as the light of the world. This was Israel's situation during this time. 400 years of silence. They had turned their back on God, even after he had redeemed them out of Babylon. But it's also every person here's situation prior to their conversion. We live in darkness. We, we love the darkness, in fact. Because we're comfortable in the darkness. Um, and until the sunrise comes to bear on our, on our darkness, we are all false worshipers. We all worship something. Um, but to worship rightly, we need the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, as Malachi 4 prophesies, the son of righteousness. Or as 2 Peter 1 describes him, he is the sun or he is the morning star. Or Revelation 22, he is the bright and morning star. Uh, he is the light of the world. We see this in John chapter 8. But he's not only the light invading our darkness, he's also our peace invading our chaos. And apart from the Prince of Peace, I can assure you there is chaos in every human heart. And that brings us to the final praise here. Praise for God guiding us into a life of peace. To guide our feet into the way of peace. In contrast to every unbeliever 
that Paul describes the, the way of peace is not known, Romans 3.17. Jesus comes to guide us in the way of peace. How does he do that? Well, our biggest problem is that we are alienated from God. That is our biggest problem. We are lost. We are separated from God. We need peace with God, an objective peace. Jesus Christ brings that objective peace by dealing with the issue that separates us from God, our sin, our rebellion. And so he takes the judgment that we deserve so that God can be true to who he is as holy and righteous and just and make reconciliation with us who are sinners. That is objective peace. And then when we trust in Jesus, we are given the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit of peace in our hearts. That is subjective peace. He brings that peace. And here's the question. Has the sunrise from on high enlightened your life this morning? Is Jesus Christ the horn of your salvation? Are you assured of the forgiveness of sins? These are all the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. Are your feet treading in the path of peace? If yes, take this Advent season to center on the infinite cost that was paid for you. If not, won't you come to him? Nate, at five years old, was right about one thing. For us to be saved, Jesus has to take away our sins. Where he was wrong, it's not a long way to Louisville, and it's not a long way to Auburn. Christmas signals the Davidic king is here, the fulfillment of God's promises. Nine promises in all. We will never, get this, be saved by our promises to God but only by his promises to every believer in Jesus Christ. As we close, I want you to think about this. This Wednesday, December the 14th, is the fifth anniversary of R.C. Sproul's death. We mentioned R.C. Sproul a few weeks ago, and many of us have been discipled in some ways by, by R.C. Sproul through his uh, radio ministry, his his book ministry, his conferences. But that day, December the 14th, he had gotten sick on December the 2nd. Uh, he'd been playing golf. He was doing well. This, all of us, this happened out of the blue. Uh, but that day, December the 14th, the family was called in. They gathered around his bed. And they were listening uh, to a, a worship CD, CD published by Sproul's ministry. The name of it was Glory to the Holy One. Interestingly, on that CD was a song called the Benedictus, a song centered, uh, focused, inspired by this Zacharias Benedictus. It was uh, the next to the last song Sproul would ever hear. But then the song, the Highland Hymn came on. Uh, Sproul was not able to speak. His eyes were closed, but they said he was making tiny movements to indicate that he was listening to that song. And then the hymn moved into the final verse. And here's the final verse. 
the beautific glory view that now our souls still long to see will make us all at once anew and like him forever be. And then the refrain, lutes will sing, pipers play when we see him face to face on that day. And with that, R.C. Sproul breathed his last breath. But the very next day, on the broadcast, Renewing Your Mind, that was his broadcast that was broadcast all over the world and had done so for decades. The very next day on that broadcast, the broadcast began with Lee Webb, the host, uh, introducing it this way. It is by God's providence that we are airing this program today on the believer's final rest. That was the name of the message that day, the believer's final rest. This program has been on our broadcast schedule for several months. And when we scheduled it, we had no idea that we would be sharing with you the sad news that our founder and dear friend, Dr. R.C. Sproul, has gone home to be with the Lord. We are mourning his loss here at Ligonier. But what a comfort to know that Dr. Sproul is today, right now, enjoying the presence of Christ face to face. He is enjoying the very reality that he teaches in this lesson. And in the closing words in that message on the believer's final rest, here's what R.C. Sproul said that had, had been uh, planned many, many months in advance. The day after his death, our greatest moment will be the moment that we walk through the door and leave this world of tears and of sorrow, this valley of death, and enter into the presence of the Lamb. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Uh, the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God, in keeping with the promises of God made to David and to Abraham, began the process of him saving us from our enemies. Our greatest enemies? No, they're not outside of you. They're not your circumstances. They're not your location. They're not your relationships. Our greatest enemies are our sin and death. Verse 76 and verse 79. Jesus took our sin. He was judged for our sin. And he was raised from death to overcome our last enemy. And that is true for every believer here today. But it's only true for the believer. And so as Adam and the musicians come forward, I want to emphasize to every person here who has not yet trusted in Christ, these promises, nine of them, promises about the divine visitation that we, we see fulfilled in Jesus Christ at the incarnation and in his life and in his death and his resurrection, these are glorious promises, but they are not unconditional. They are conditioned upon your repentance of your sin and of your faith in Jesus Christ. That is a summons to every unbeliever here this morning. Won't you come this morning? Won't you respond to that gospel message? May this Advent season be the season by which you are converted to Jesus Christ. Won't you respond to that as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. 
If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.